Well, <clears throat> after, after some of the content of the morning announcements, and then an invitation to dance, <laughs> the suggestion of repeating a song, I honestly think I have not come here to this service alive if anyone says amen later when I'm preaching. How many changes can we have in one day? I'm breathless. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Listen, before, before we ever repeat a song, I'm preaching twice, just so you know. So you, wanna, you might want to think that through, because uh, I often feel like doing it again. All right. Well... The text is the anchor, so I can just go back there. Luke 13, Luke chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through 17. Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 17. Uh, this is the word of God. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Well, before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you because you are a great God and you have given us freedom in Jesus Christ and you have given us your Holy Spirit who fills us with joy 
And Lord, I pray that as a church, I pray that we will grow in our expressions of joy, in our experience of emotional worship. Help us to truly love you, to be committed to you, but to also feel the beauty of the relationship that you have formed with us through what Jesus has done on our behalf. Help us to be a people who think and feel deeply about you. Help us to dedicate our minds to learning about you, to knowing you better and better, to knowing truth from error. Help us to dedicate our hearts, the very center of our being, to prioritizing you, to to making you our ultimate commitment in all area of life. Help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, we pray for uh, those who are not here this morning, whether traveling or whether just uh, unable to be out. Lord, we just pray for them. Like this woman who uh, was able to come out uh, to the synagogue, but it must have been difficult for her. We know that there are some who are incapacitated and can't come at all today. I just pray that you will touch them, that you will draw them close to you, that you will minister to their hearts. Lord, for our students, I pray that you will give them uh, good moral resolve to honor you. Uh, Bless them and encourage them as they work. Uh, May they see much fruit for their labor on campuses uh, in sharing their faith. Uh, We just pray, Lord, that this year will, will not be just another regular year in the life cycle of Crestwick Baptist Church, but that this will be a time when your spirit truly gets a hold of us in a new and a profound way, where you open your word, where you apply it deeply and profoundly. May we see life transformation taking place. And Father, we ask that you will do that work in each of us. We ask that you will start with us. Work in our lives. Help us to be more like Jesus. And may we see many others in the in this city come to know him through our witness. Be with us, we pray, as we look to your word. Uh, teach it to us and bless it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Fifteen years ago and one week. Fifteen years and one week. I was sitting on a couch in the basement apartment uh, that Heather and I had been living in for just a couple months with my jaw wired shut with all kinds of pain medicine that had to be injected through a syringe. Uh, If you've ever had your jaw broken and wired shut, you know what it's like. Uh, Everything goes through a blender. Uh, Everything goes into a needle. And there's sort of this sneaky little plastic nozzle. You kind of have to thread through the back side of your teeth. So it's at the back of your mouth and you just squeeze in the food. And that's how you sustain your life for six weeks or so. In my case, it was six weeks. Uh, my mind was still a little bit rattled, probably from the concussion uh, that I had when I was in the car accident. Uh, partly from all the pain medicine, uh, still on lots of Demerol. And I, still, I, I don't know why, I still remember the name, the, the brand name of that pain medicine. Uh, maybe because I had to take it so often, and it was so helpful and uh, to me. Uh, so we were sitting there, antibiotics, just a whole round and round of medication. I'd been in a car accident just a few days before. I had my jaw wired shut, spent a lot of time on a backboard. Doctors had thought I might be paralyzed. It's a small hospital in Lindsay, taken to Sunnybrook in Toronto, uh, you know, CAT scans and uh, MRIs and all the rest. But exactly 15 years ago, in one week, 
sitting in the basement in that condition. And uh, Heather came in and said, there's something going on. A plane has just flown into the World Trade Center. It's hard to process that at the best of times. And then if I don't know, there's, it wasn't just an accident. There was another plane that hit in the second tower. And if you were around uh, 15 years ago, you remember how you heard the news. You remember what was going on. I remember, because for us, we didn't have any, we didn't have internet and we didn't have any television stations. So we actually didn't know what was going on. As so you're getting all these little bits and pieces of information, you're trying to figure out, is the whole world at war? Like, what is happening? We had no idea. And so not only for me, just sort of being in the state I was in, there's this, there's this very real sense of fear. What is going on? And when is it going to end? And what else is going to happen? And all of the rest. And, and you remember those feelings very well yourself. All the uncertainty, all of the fear. What is going on? And what's going to be the end of this? What's going to be the entailment of this? In the tower, there were a number of people who died. And they were all very diverse. There were atheists who died. There were Muslims who died. There were evangelical Christians who died. There would have been people who really had no sort of religious sensibilities whatsoever. They just wouldn't have had much of a thought about God at all. They died that day too. And so what you can't do is you can't say, when there's a tragedy, it's because... Those people are worse than everyone else. I mean, make no mistake, the people who died in the World Trade Center, they weren't worse sinners than anyone else in New York. But they were there at what we refer to now as sort of the ground zero. But you can't just sort of look at life and say, when there's a tragedy, when there's death, it's because they're worse. It's because of sin. There must be something specific in their life that caused them to be there at that time. This last week, many of you know that uh, the lead pastor at Grandview Baptist Church in Kitchener, uh, Steve Baxter, uh, passed away. Uh, he was 55 years old, no known health conditions, and just about a week or so, a little bit more than a week ago, he started having a headache. His wife is, I think, I won't give her exact title or description, Sam knows, but she basically runs the medical department at McMaster University, or something like that. And as the headache wasn't getting better, she said, you need to, you just need to go to the hospital and get this checked out. So they scanned him, uh, they found bleeding in the brain, they couldn't figure out why, he slipped into a coma. They did surgery, relieved the pressure, still couldn't find the source, couldn't figure out what was happening. And a few days ago, the the family decided that there was no recovery. There was not going to be any recovery at all. And so he, they removed the life support system, I think ethically, rightly, and he went to be in the presence of the Lord. A week and a half ago, no one possibly could have suspected that that was going to happen. 55 years of age. I'm 37. So 55 for me is 18 years. 
in 18 years is about exactly the amount of time that I've been in ministry part and full time. So for me, I'm looking at it thinking, if I, if I die at 55, half of my ministry is done. And that gives me a little bit of motivation to try to make the next 18 years, if I get those 18 years, count. What have I done with the f- previous 18 years? Did I really serve the Lord? Well, how, was I too busy serving myself, trying to build up sort of a, a ministry kingdom for me? Or was I really serving God? What have I done for the Lord? What have I done for people? Really? But in our association of pastors, Steve Baxter, the the lead pastor at Grandview, he wasn't a worse sinner than any of us. He's He's a gracious, kind, godly man. He's always very, very kind to me. And so you can't say, oh, when tragedies happen, it's because they're a greater sinner. Here, this place you know very well, uh, the name of Andrew Rousalowski, 29-year-old husband, father of a one-year-old and a three-year-old child at that time, uh, died with leukemia. Smart, brilliant young man, godly young man, teaching in the church. I mean, whole future from from a human perspective, you say this is this is guy is sort of he's he's blue chip stock. I mean, he is going to do incredible things in terms of teaching and preaching in the academy and in the church. He was not less godly than many; he was more godly than many. John chapter nine. There's a man who's been born who was born blind, and the disciples say to Jesus, "Who sinned?" This man or his parents that he was born blind. Is the Jews believe that there was sort of, you could sin in the womb, sort of neonatal rebellion. And so they say, well, who sinned that he was born blind? Meaning he might have sinned before he was born. Now, if you track it back, you know, you do get this in the Old Testament where David will say, in, I was sort of, I was conceived in sin, not meaning that the act of, the, that his parents' act was sinful. But that sin nature is part of us from the very beginning. And so you can say, so if sin nature is part of us from conception, then maybe you do sin in the womb. You are a sinner before you're born. There is never a time when a human being is not a sinner, does not have a sin nature. So the Jews sort of try to logically and say, well, if you're always a sinner, then maybe you can sin in the womb. You can do something. But the heart of their question assumes if something bad happens to you, it's because of sin. Someone's being punished for something that they've done. This, of course, is exactly the argument of Job's comforters in the book of Job. But you'll never understand the book of Job unless you understand this. There's, there's a few things, but here's, here's one of them. The narrator begins Job by telling you, Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So that's what the narrator says to introduce the book. Blameless and upright, fears God, shuns evil. And then God, in chapter 1, when he's talking about Job, says, Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, when you're working with limited amounts of space, and you don't have computer fonts, the way people in biblical times emphasized things 
was by repeating them. They, they didn't put it in italics. They didn't put it in caps locks. They, they didn't put it in bold. They didn't have those kinds of functions. So when you see repetition, it's designed to get you to see this is the big point. This is the big point. So what's the big point of Job chapter 1? It's that Job is absolutely blameless and righteous. He fears God. He shuns evil. So then when all of his friends start coming along and saying, you know what? This wouldn't have happened if you weren't a sinner. We already know that God himself has said differently. God himself has said that Job isn't a great sinner. Job is better than any of his friends who are talking to him. In fact, it's because of his righteousness that Job will end up suffering. It's because of his righteousness that God and Satan begin to talk about him. In fact, it's God who introduces Job to Satan. This is very important. Satan doesn't bring it up. God does. Have you considered my servant Job? Blameless, upright, fears me, shuns evil. Have you seen him? And it's at that point that Satan says, well, let me do this. But God is still even in sovereign control of the drift of the conversation. Now, Job never knows about that conversation in heaven, which means Job is always missing the key piece of evidence to understand what's taking place in his life. Now, that's very important. In fact, when God shows up at the end of the book and begins to talk to Job, and he starts talking about, how do you, what do you know about creation? What do you know about the animals? What do you know about the stars? What he's doing is he's showing Job, listen, Job, you don't even understand the world around you, which you see. What do you think you know about the spiritual realm, which you don't see? In other words, Job, you're just not in a position to judge me. You are not in a position to discredit my justice. And this is what God says to him. Job, would you discredit my justice to justify yourself? Now, the same sort of idea is here in Luke 13. People are, people are thinking, if they died, if there was a tragedy, they must have deserved it. They must have been worse. And so Jesus says, look, the people, the Galileans who were slaughtered while they were offering their sacrifices, the people who were crushed by the tower, do you think that they were any worse than anyone else? And a lot of people would have said, well, of course they were. Look what happened. But Jesus, just like God, in absolute consistency from Old Testament to New Testament revelation, Jesus is saying, of course not. I tell you, it's emphatic. I tell you, no, no. You can't just look around at life and see when tragedies happen to people and say, well, God must be trying to teach them something. I wonder what it is that God's trying to teach them. I wonder why they needed to go through that. Now, listen, God will use everything in your life to teach you something. He will. And all things will ultimately work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not a blanket promise for everyone. But for the children of God, absolutely everything will work out for their good. That is a fact. But there is no correlation between if something difficult happens in your life, there must be some particular sin that caused it. We live in a broken and cursed and sin-filled world. And yes, we are all sinners. But no... God does not just sort of bring tragedy into our life in proportion to the sins that we've committed. 
fact, this is a part of the problem in Psalm 73. The psalmist is looking around saying, why are all these really, really, really obviously wicked people living such easy lives? Like, how's that fair? How's that right? You know, God, you know, I've been praising you and I have a disease. They're blaspheming you and they're healthy and strong. I've been praising you and working for you and I'm poor and struggling to eat. They're stealing and oppressing people and they're rich. Where's the justice? How's it right that the faithful seem to get trampled down in this world while the unrighteous survive and thrive? How is that fair? And the psalmist says, I almost lost my footing. I almost, I was like a brute beast. I was so angry until I stood in the sanctuary. Until I came into your presence, then I beheld their eternal destiny. Meaning, as difficult as things may be in this life, just remember, this life is very, 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 very short in light of all of eternity in the unfolding plans of God. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that God can take the most wicked event in history and use it to bring about ultimate good. And so in the cross of Jesus Christ, what we see is that if if the murder of God incarnate can be used to bring about salvation and a new heavens and new earth, then there is no instance of pain and sorrow and heartache and suffering and evil in this world that God cannot redeem and use for a greater good. If God can bring that much good, a new heavens and new earth, out of the crucifixion of his son, then there is nothing that he can't bring good out of. There is no tragedy, there is no instance of evil beyond his sovereign control. And so we cling to that. That there will be nothing that happens in our lives that God will not use for good. And we have the assurance that we are not being punished whenever something bad happens in our lives. I mean, with Job, I think, and I think, you know, we have friends who will say these sorts of things. We have people who are well-meaning, even in the church, who'll try to say things like that. Well, you know, I don't know, God must be trying to teach you something. Is there any, is there any sin in your life that you need to deal with? That's not how God works. That's part of the problem with Job. His friends keep coming along saying, hey, there must be some sin. Let us help you find it. And Job's saying, there isn't. Like, I, I don't know if I'm being punished because of my sin. It doesn't make sense. In fact, this is where Job kind of goes off the rails a little bit near the end. Is he sort of saying, I am not the sinner you are saying that I am. So what God's doing isn't right. Job is in such pain and trying to work through this that he basically says, God's not being just with me. God's justice has miscarried because if he punishes people for their flagrant sin, this just isn't right. It doesn't line up. And his friends keep saying, Job, it must, it must. God wouldn't be doing, you wouldn't be suffering if you weren't a sinner. So let's find the sin. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's that. And they just keep piling up false guilt and pain upon him. So we have people who will sort of surround us and do that. But sometimes it's not the people around us who do that. It's our own conscience. Sometimes we operate with the exact same framework. And so we start saying, God, what did I do? God, just tell me so I can... Say I'm sorry and turn away from it. What did I do? 
Because I, didn't I do enough? Didn't I, didn't I love you enough? I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm, I know I sin. I, I know, you know, it, it, I, I know, but Lord, I'm trying. Like, what more do you want from me? What else could I have done? Why? Just tell me and I'll repent. Tell me what it is. Because Lord, I'm doing my very best. How can I be trying to walk with you faithfully and this happens? How can that be right? Lord, what do you want from me? Is it, when is enough enough? But it's the exact same thing that Job's friends were doing to Job, except that we do it to ourselves. We, we rack ourselves over the coals. Lord, this wouldn't be happening if I was just more faithful. Lord, I know this wouldn't be happening if I was just more godly. So, so help me sort of get to a place where this doesn't need to happen anymore. And in our lives, that self-incrimination and self-accusation is just as false as it was when Job did it, when Job's friends did it to him. It doesn't become right just because we're doing it to ourselves. Okay. So what is Jesus's response then to these two terrible current events? Do you think they were greater sinners because they were suffering? I tell you, no. Verse 3, I tell you, no. Verse 5, I tell you, no. Emphatic and repeated. So he is making sure you know this, that you stop going around life looking for tragedy and then spotting sinners on the basis of what they're going through. You can't do it. I tell you, no. But the lesson is this. Also repeated twice. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You will all perish. Every one of you. In other words, the whole world is filled with people who are sinners and the wages of sin is death. So the whole world is filled with people who deserve nothing but death. And so unless you repent, unless you turn away from your sin, you will perish. And now thematically, this is going to be tied to what we've been looking at in Luke chapter 12 too. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but afterwards can do no more. I tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who after the body is dead has the authority to cast you into hell. I tell you, fear him. And then Jesus talks about, be ready. Be ready. There's going to come a day when you are called to stand before the Lord. Be ready. Or the Lord is going to return and you're going to give an account for your life. Be ready. And that's, that's what Luke 12 has been about, right? We've spent enough weeks in there, in that chapter. We should know that. Be ready. You're going to stand before the Lord. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. And then Luke 13. Listen, it might happen anytime. And so what's the great lesson? The great lesson is be ready. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Because you are going to die. It's inevitable. Now, this means then that we're supposed to stop looking around judging other people on the basis of what's going on in their life. And we're supposed to make, we're just supposed to make sure that we ourselves are right with God. That's the point. Are you right with God? In fact, this is one of the things that, that people should have thought about, that they should have said 15 years and one week ago. When the Trade Center came down, the dominant biblical response should have been, am I ready to meet God? What if I was in that tower? 
would I have been ready to meet God? Unless you repent, you will all perish. Now, notice that that's absolutely universal. There is no exception. There is no exemption. There is no one who doesn't fit that. You all will perish unless you have turned away from sin and you are right with God. Now, that's a very, that's a very stern and sobering warning because the stakes are very stern and sobering. But then Jesus tells this parable about the fig tree growing in a vineyard and they're looking for fruit and they don't find any. For three years, they keep looking for fruit and they decide to cut it down. Then in verse eight, sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Well, what is, what is being said here? Well, the fig tree is, is a common, uh, image in the Old Testament prophets for Israel, for God's people. And there's lots of judgment in the Old Testament prophets when the fig tree isn't bearing fruit. So really what you're being told here is this. God will be patient. And this is, and this is the counterbalancing truth of this. God is very patient. God is very patient. But death is inevitable. It may come in an unexpected way, being slaughtered by pilot soldiers being involved in a, in a tragic accident. But it is going to come. But God doesn't go around just sort of ending people's lives the moment they sin. He is so patient with people. No fruit for all these years. And someone says, oh, look at, look how useless that tree is. Just cut it down. And God says, not yet. I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to, I'm going to water it. I'm going to dig a trench around it. I'm going to prune it. I'm going to keep working at it. Eventually, if there's no fruit, then yes, it will be destroyed, but not yet, not yet, not yet. This is one of the great things about God. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when people are mocking God, where is his coming that he promised? Why is everything going on just the same as it used to? He's not coming back. Now, that's like within a generation of Jesus being on earth, right? They're, they're mocking. People have mocked the church literally since the time of the New Testament in terms of the second coming of Jesus Christ. They would have come back by now if he was going to come back. And Peter says, what don't you understand about this? He's not slow in keeping his promises as some people, some mockers understand slowness, but he is what? Patient with you. Why? Why is he patient? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to, to, to life. And so his patience is designed to what? Lead you to repentance. In other words, as you think about how patient God has been in your life, that he hasn't just cut you down immediately uh, with all of your sin and all of your rebellion, that's supposed to be a clue as to the character of God. He could have destroyed you at any time, but he's still giving you life. Why? Because he wants you to live. And he invites you to see, look at my heart, look at my patience, look at my kindness, look at my goodness. Let that be a clue to repent. Come and know me. Come and love me. Stop being fruitless. Stop being rebellious. Just come and know me. But the patience of God will eventually end. The patience of God is not forever. He will keep working with us. He will keep convicting us. He will keep calling us. But if we refuse his call, then in the end, we will be cut down. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you were very young or very old. It just doesn't. Because you go into all of eternity before God. 
Now, what then does that have to do with this next section? As Luke is putting his gospel together, this next section is about this crippled woman who's healed on the Sabbath. So, so how do these two things relate? Now, the connection with the first nine verses of chapter 13 and chapter 12 is pretty obvious. But what about this? Well, this woman has been crippled for 18 years. So it's at one level, it's not an emergency. However, as Jesus says, people would untie their animals on the Sabbath day and lead them out to have a drink and then lead them back and tie them back up. It was an act of mercy for their animals. But the animal wasn't going to die. It could wait a few more hours too before it had a drink. So it wasn't it's a sort of a, a it wasn't a matter of life or death to give your animal a drink on the Sabbath. And so Jesus uses the same principle. He says, "How is it possible that you will release your animal to have a drink, but you're upset that I've released this woman from this horrible condition?" Like, like what kind of a reading of the law allows you to be more concerned for your animal's thirst than for the suffering of this person created in the image of God. It could only be the most crass type of hypocritical legalism. You treat your donkey better than you treat this daughter of Abraham, this member of God's community. He says, Satan has kept her bound for 18 long years. Shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day? Now, why? First of all, that we and I've talked about Sabbath here before, so I'm, I'll, I'm going to gloss this very quickly. Um, but the Jews maintained that you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day. There are all kinds of categories of things you couldn't do is work on the Sabbath day. And they're always upset that Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. Come back later and be healed. Right? But Jesus says, no, in fact, this is the best day to heal her. Shouldn't this daughter of Abraham be set free on the Sabbath day? Now, why? It's not just a logical point that if you'll let your donkey have a drink, it's better to release this woman from her, from her condition. Why is the Sabbath especially the right day for her to be released? Well, to answer that question, we need to know what the Sabbath is for. What is the Sabbath? Well, Sabbath is bound up with rest. And where do we first come across it? We first come across Sabbath on the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And you'll remember that at the end of the sixth day, everything was very good. And you'll remember that the first six days have that sort of formulaic ending, and it was morning, and it was evening, the whatever day. But you don't have that with day seven. There is no morning and evening formula at the end of day seven. Which is interesting, because it would seem to indicate then that day seven is ongoing. It would also seem to indicate, you may be able to backfill a little bit and try to figure out what exactly the morning-evening formula means if the seventh day is far longer than one exact day. Uh, but you look at that, you know, that's very interesting. So day seven isn't, isn't bounded. It, it doesn't have this completion formula. So it's not like you move on to day eight. You're in day seven. Why? Because on that day, God rests. The first six days have absolute symmetry. Day one corresponds to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six. It's perfectly symmetrical. 
but nothing corresponds to day seven. Day seven stands all by itself. Day seven is the capstone. It's the completion of God's creation. He enters into his rest. And the idea there then is that all of creation drives forward to participate in the rest of God. Now, I want you to see this. So turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And you are familiar with this section because this section is the Ten Commandments. And so you like this section. You've you've heard it lots. Seen lots of little flannel graphs with a little Moses and little little Ten Commandments. So, commandment number four. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. I will just interject at this point that if you believe that Sunday is a Christian Sabbath, that if you believe that the Sabbath is just as binding in the New Covenant era as it was in the Old Covenant era, in terms of an actual day a week, I just want you to notice uh, verse 9. Uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work. That is as much a part of the Sabbath command as resting on the seventh day. So if you maintain, if you maintain Sunday as a Christian Sabbath, you better not be working a five-day work week or else you're violating the command. Uh, I'm not being picky. That's what it says. That's a, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the ground for Sabbath observance is given in verse 11. It ties you back into God's creation rest. So why do we observe Sabbath in the Old Covenant? Because it's a reminder of God's creation rest. Now, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, because Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives you, also gives you the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Well, what is the ground for observing the Sabbath day in this version of the Ten Commandments? It's not creation. It's redemption. Therefore, because he brought you out of Egypt... You observe the Sabbath day. Now, what on earth is going on here? Now, liberal scholars are going to say, well, they're just two contradictory traditions, and they're both recorded. Which then would make the editor of the first five books of the Bible an absolute moron not to notice that and to include two contradictory traditions about the Ten Commandments. So we can probably dispense with that view, even without a high view of Scripture being the the, the Word of God. Even a human editor is not that much of a dolt. Okay? So what's going on here? Well... The point is the same, but derived at from different angles, or arrived at, rather, from different angles. Creation is inviting you to rest with God in eschatological, or sort of end times rest, fulfillment, completion. And so the Sabbath commandment given to Israel was to remind them 
that you are still invited to experience the trajectory, the end of God's created order. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because Genesis chapter 3 ruined God's very good creation by bringing in sin. And so can human beings still experience day 7 creation rest as sinners? No. Unless what? Unless there's redemption. And so both of these commandments are showing you, you by your sin have severed yourself off from day seven, creation rest. The whole point of creation was to get you into day seven. You've ruined it by your sin, but now the Sabbath is to remind you that there is a creation rest. Why? How can I still enter creation rest? You've been redeemed. So these things are both driving you forward prophetically to who? To the Redeemer. To the one who actually sets you free, who buys you out of slavery, who releases you from the penalty of sin and shame and death, and who gives you liberty in his own shed blood dying in your place. So that Jesus himself becomes the avenue through which we arrive at God's rest. That is, we come into eternal rest through Jesus. We enter into day seven creation rest through Jesus and Jesus alone because he is the redeemer. And in fact, we actually find that rest in him, which is why at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus will say, listen, all of you who weary and are heavy laden, come to me and you will find what? You will find rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and you will find rest. Repetition. That's the italics in the text. The point is rest. And a Hebrew would identify rest with only one thing, and that would be Sabbath. And that's why he, Matthew 11 ends with that call, and Matthew 12 begins with a narrative about Jesus being greater than the Sabbath. It's connected. It's not just a call, hey, existentially, if you're beat up by the world, come on and I'll soothe your mind. It's come and find Sabbath rest in me. That's the whole point. You can't possibly understand the Old Testament and not see that in Matthew 11 and 12. And then in Hebrews, we're told there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Don't harden your heart and refuse to enter it. Come into it by faith. Come into the Sabbath rest of the people of God today, he says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as your fathers did in the wilderness. Today. Come and experience rest in Jesus. And so why does all those warnings of Luke 13, 1 through 9 fit with Jesus liberating this woman? It's because you're not just called to, repentance means to turn away from something. You're not just called to turn away from something. You're told to turn away from something and enter rest. You're told to return, to turn away from your sin and come to Jesus. You're told to turn away from death and come to life. You're told to turn away from bondage and come to freedom. You're told to turn away from all that you are outside of day seven. You're told to turn away from Genesis three and your sin and come back into a restored creation rest because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Creation and redemption. That's what gives us rest. In Jesus. And so don't go around looking at all the tragedies of life, trying to figure out what lessons God's trying to teach people. Just get right with God. Just enter rest. Just come into Sabbath. Come into Jesus Christ himself. So when we see the tragedies in the world, the great lesson really is this. When you see the 9-11 and all the rest, 
turn away from sin. That is what, that death is what you deserve. But turn away from it. And come into life. Come into rest. Come into Jesus. And if you do that, you may actually be so excited that you want to sing a song twice. (laughs) The text ends by saying, and they were delighted. They were delighted. You turn away from tragedy and you come into delight because Sabbath and Jesus isn't boring. It's literally what we were, what we were created for. It's where we flourish and where we thrive. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up and lead us in uh, one closing song. <laughs>